So welcome to the Dossier Podcast. This is Jordan Schachtel, and I'm joined by an awesome guest today, uh, my friend Justin Hart, who we go, we don't really go way back, but um, to the start of the, I guess we go back to like, you know, early 2020. Um, Justin has been working in, you know, communications and politics and strategy for a long time. And Justin was, and remains, uh, much more influential, I think, than people realize. And, you know, to Justin's great, great credit, he doesn't, you know, overtly um, brag about what he's done in changing the conversation about COVID-19. Um, and certainly on a, you know, on a state level easily, but also on a national level. Uh, I think a lot of people um, don't realize that Justin is uh, such an important coalition builder, and was one of the people that brought a lot of uh, COVID narrative contrarians and skeptics, you know, people that were, you know, came from all walks of life to just um, were, were disturbed by what was going on in, in the early days of the pandemic in the United States, you know, even as far as early as February, March of 2020 with the lockdowns and stuff. And, um, you know, Justin founded rationalground.com and he's also done a lot of work behind the scenes in providing really an alternative um, messaging outlet that I think, um, and, and Justin, feel free to you know, talk about this. I think that this messaging platform, whether it was you know, officially through Rational Ground or unofficially through other channels, I, I think that a lot of us made a tremendous impact. And, and you as you know, the coalition builder, uh, I think a lot of people should be thanking you for, for, for what you've done. And, and I could attest to it that Justin's information, which didn't, of course, only come from Justin, but Justin, you know, like filtered all this information. Um, a lot of this information got to President Trump's desk. And President Trump, while he did have instincts that were solid, he needed data and he needed hard facts. And I think Justin and his team um, really presented that in a, in, in a solid fashion was it, Justin, I think you built the first coalition to kind of strike back against these public health authoritarians. Well, look, I, I think my wife is running up the stairs right now to let the, the air out of my head. I, I think you've set a big bar for me there. I, I don't know exactly how influential I am on all this, but uh, I know and I feel strongly that uh, the team uh, and the, the, the people that were sort of tangential to rational ground and to myself really did make an impact. And I include yourself in that. I mean, you really led the way uh, as far as the, the blue check marks go to, to really push a very different um, narrative and one that we think is really grounded in truth. And as far as knowing each other, yeah, we've only known each other for last year, but I have to tell you the the closest friends I've made have been in the last year. And that's, that's what happens when you go through this sort of very um, traumatic world event. And, and uh, while it's only been a year, it seems like a lifetime, right? It just sort of slows time down. Um, look, my, my background, I, I, uh, I, I'm originally from the Bay Area, uh, but I, I, after finishing school at BYU, I, I moved out to DC. And um, in Washington, DC, I was hoping to, to bring the internet and politics together. But that was 1996. I'm a Gen X guy. And uh, it was still a decade off before politics would really marry itself to the internet. And when that happened in 2008 with President Obama 
uh, handing us our hats on the conservative side and doing so through the internet. It was really impressive. And so I started looking into it and I, I left my, uh, my, my job in the private sector after doing a, a stint in the first dot-com boom and bust where I cut my teeth doing internet strategies. I built websites like gm.com and toyota.com and du DuPont and did, did all these great, exciting things with the internet. But I always noticed like, like I did toyota.com in 1998 with a team of about a hundred people. They paid some multi-million dollars for it. I can't even remember now. But two years later, the website was gone, rebuilt and everything else. I thought I want something that's lasting. And so I kind of took that internet spell over to the internet uh, over to the political side, and I had a consultancy. I had one of my my first clients was a great guy named Chuck DeVore out here in California who was running against Barbara Boxer. And uh, we made, hey, we made some really good, fun progress. In fact, if you Google my name and Don Henley and Chuck DeVore, you'll find some some interesting case law out there where we did a uh, a video using a Don Henley song, All She Wants to Do is Dance, Dance, and we turned it into all she wants to do is tax, tax about Barbara Boxer. Uh, we did a sort of um, uh, a la uh, Weird Al Yankovic, right, where we took the Don Henley song and put different lyrics to it. But that is satire, not parody, and it's not as protected speech. And that became case law. We kind of lost a little ground to Don Henley. He took his chunk of skin with him. But that sort of set my career. Uh, I went on uh, to become uh, one of the, the digital directors on the Mitt Romney campaign. Uh, and while I was there, my uh, protege at that time was Aaron Jin, this young upstart kid who had all this energy and all this knowledge. One of the things that P and I both shared is that uh, on the conservative, on the Republican side, uh, a lot of people are politicos first and technologists second. And we were very, very keen on changing that because both he and I had professional training and we were also keen about politics on the right side of the political equation. And so Aaron and I kept in touch over a decade. He went on to do some incredible things um, and uh, became a growth hacker, as he liked to call it, uh, but really made a name for himself, started building his own consultancy business. And then he wrote, uh, he and I started wrote, writing posts um, on Medium. Uh, and uh, we, we did this early on. My first post was in uh, March. And I think one of my first articles was uh, how I learned uh, to stop worrying and love coronavirus. Uh, and uh, you know, taking a, a, a tag from that old- Cooper I remember film. that one. <laughs> that and, was and, and that one, fine, I got fine. But Aaron wrote this incredibly lengthy piece uh, where he laid the, the, the deaths at the door of China and Medium took him down in a big way. And so all of a sudden we got together and we realized that we we're gonna have to make some waves in a, in a big way. So we started thinking about, could we, could we brand a website? Because personally, I had left politics after the big dance with Romney. I'd moved out here back to California. Uh, I'm in San Diego now. And I just do consultancy. At the beginning of 2020, my main clients were, one, a group that does high-end uh, golf excursions for baby boomers. And then, two, uh, a high-end uh, vacation club for families. And then, three, a group uh, building off a really unique set of software for parents wanting to send their kids to college. Dead, dead, dead. All of those killed by the lockdown. So I yeah. had uh, my, my income went to zero. And I thought at that point, I could do one of two things. I could either live off the public dime or I could do what my gut tells me because my training is in, in funnel management, right? Um, and marketing, which is to say, you get a certain amount of people to your website and then those convert into leads and those convert into opportunities and customers. 
And you can see that as sort of a funnel coming down, right? That's what we talked about in sales and marketing in the professional world. And what I realized very quickly was that that was exactly what virology was about. Now, I had my own stint with virology about three years ago where I was hospitalized for two weeks with a staph infection. Uh, staph is that natural flora that you have on your skin and it got into my bloodstream and I was out. I was uh, probably a 30 chance, 30% chance of dying off of that. And it became sort of a, a, a hobby of mine to look into that. How this small little speck almost kill me, uh, give me pleurisy of the lungs, which is the worst thing you can get, just awful, awful experience. Um, but I came out of that with a, with a healthy uh, uh, understanding as to what really affects our body. And so with that in mind, the, the funnel and my experience with virology, all of a sudden I started doing the numbers and I said, the numbers coming out of China and coming out of our government are dead wrong. That funnel makes no sense. And we need to look at this more strongly. And, and so when I started bringing up the skepticism, all of a sudden I started getting blocked. You know, C.T. Berkster was the first guy who blocked me. He said, Justin, goodbye. Blocked me. And we had been in conversation for many times, right? Um, but then I, I found that there was a willing and very fervent audience because people were sitting there in their homes, looking outside their window, their plow was in the field, and they're not allowed to, to, to till it, right? They're not allowed to go to work. We were all succumbed to this terrible equation. And I remember, I remember distinctly, um, you know, I was a huge Trump fan. I, I predicted Trump would win uh, at, in 2016. But then uh, at the end of March, on that fateful day, March 29th, when uh, we had just gone through the two weeks of very interesting experience of the whole country being locked down. And then they said they were extending it. And I said right there, Trump just lost the election. Um, yeah. And I, I knew it. I knew it because even just from a perspective of voting, if one or 2% of the population over 65 is too scared to go to the polls or otherwise, or you know, decides that you, know, you were at fault for coronavirus, you've lost. You've lost on the Republican side. So we started looking at, you know, how do we really make the way? And that's where Rational Ground came about. Aaron and I created this group. And then uh, our main channel has always been Twitter. We found a good following there. Uh, it's very quick and easy. Uh, even though it's a, a very select audience in, in many ways, it has a distinct influence um, for uh, other impacts across the board. Uh, and with Aaron getting kicked off of, of Medium and other channels and seeing other people getting censored, we realized there was an opportunity. So that's the short story on where I came from and how I got to rational ground. Yeah, it seemed in the early days that um, those of us who dissented from the popular COVID opinion, which was basically just um, shut everything down. This is the, the world's worst pandemic, you know, at least the worst pandemic in a hundred years. We were in such a small minority group. So to have people like you and Aaron around was so critical because there were just kind of like voices in the wilderness from what I remember. It was just that there was, there was this very select few of us um, in terms of like my fellow media colleagues, I could probably count them on one hand. Um, and, and again, you know, it, 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 it was a very interesting experience because while we had some medical doctors, of course, that were um, questioning the conventional narratives that these supposed public health experts were putting out, a lot of the people, um, whether like officially associated with your, um, your publication, Rational Ground, or elsewhere, come from very different angles on this. And I think we all came to agree uh, that something was not right here, that there was, we were being misled. And then 
for me, it was really just like, I didn't accept this initial premise because all you really had to do is read data. And once you kind of like got, the further you went into the data, the, the less these narratives made any sense. Even when it came out to those, you know, whether it was like the case numbers, the infection fatality numbers, and then when China said that they shut everything down and it worked and that, you know, everything has been solved here, but it had, but everywhere else in the world needs to shut down. There were so many weird narratives. And I think so many people just became panicked and we found ourselves in such a small minority. So it was basically, you know, up to people like you and Aaron and, and very few others to, you guys had the wisdom and the vision to bring together some people that you thought could change the conversation. So I, I think that like, that's, that, that was so critical because the, the White House um, infamously, you know, the, Trump told Pence to put together this COVID task force. And then well, we didn't even know how bad these people were at the time. We just kind of like assumed they were bureaucrats and they were whatever, you know, not, not really impressive people, careers uh, in, in the government. You know, you had Fauci, you had Burks, you had uh, Mnuchin for some reason, you had the, you know, the FDA director, you had all these people in government science and Trump appointees who came from big pharma, who came from other industries where you have this like revolving door element where they're not really interested in the concerns of the people. Um, so you had like these kind of like weird corrupt class, you had the Fauci and Burks of the world. And I remember my contacts in the White House were like telling me like, this is really bad. There, there's no alternative voices. Um, and then I guess like maybe I think you started to kind of, or not you just singularly, but, but, but these coalitions formed by you, Aaron, and, and other people started to really influence the conversation. I think when the president still had an opportunity to reverse things and um, you know, like the stuff that instinctively president Trump was always talking about remember early on, he said, I don't want the uh, cure to be worse than the disease as a, a businessman, he was very much aware that, you know, that there are costs to shutting down society, but I, it seemed like he was, he was alone in, in, in kind of thinking that way because Pence is very much a politician, not a businessman. And he was just kind of like alone on an Island. So I think what you guys established was critical. And although president Trump ended up, you know, losing the election and people can, Think whatever they want about the election. Uh, I guess the the reality of now is that Joe Biden is president. So, yeah, that, it was, that's for a whole was a another difficult candidate. prospect all around. And I think there were there was one night I remember it was two a.m. in the morning. I think it was uh, March, maybe early April, and I was just texting Aaron. He couldn't sleep either uh, because you know we had taken a very firm stance, and there were people coming after us. Like you're actually this is when we first heard you know you're going to kill Grandma. Yeah, and, and it took me back, and I thought. I really I don't want to be, you know, the impact that 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 kills someone or that has an impact on someone's lives. But then I, I started getting texts from people who say, hey, did you hear so and so passed away? Yeah, it was uh, colon cancer. He just didn't catch it fast enough. Right. And then um, we had you know, some people come on our side. I remember one of the big reliefs I had was when John Ioannidis, uh, you know, the Stanford biostatistician came out and, and John is the most cited living scientist alive. And he came out um, basically taking the same stance we did, that the data was bad. Um, we are making terrible decisions off this. We've never done this before. 
uh, and that we should really rethink this. And then uh, that gave, I think, an ounce of courage to a lot of people to come forward and say, yeah, I think John is right. When I look at the data, I think we're way off. And when, you know, we, we would cite the, the flip side of the coin, uh, you, you know, one of the ones I often cite uh, is that uh, we, we estimated from the University of Michigan and the University of Florida that about 250,000 cases of alleged child abuse were missed just in the spring of last year because it's typically wide-eyed teachers and administrators at school who find those out and report them. And so imagine just the suffering from that single piece. And then you have, you know, very attested studies that show that for every percentage of unemployment that upticks, you'll see 30,000 deaths over the course of many years because of uh, drug abuse, um, lack of health care, whatever else you have there. And so that flip side was never taken into consideration because, you know, Dr. Fauci is the highest paid federal employee. And these people, uh, we basically just gave our lives over to them. My kindest thing I can say about these folks, if I you know, like to put on my nice hat, and I'm a nice guy, is that it's like our, we gave our lives over to a, you know, our physician. If I gave my life over to him, it would be super boring. He'd have me stay at home. He'd throw away my milk. He'd have me you know, sleep eight hours a night. I mean, these are all choices that I have to make as a person and with lots of kids. I don't get a lot of choices there. But those risks were taken away from us. We didn't get the choice for that. And instead, you know, uh, I always say, you probably absolutely know someone that that had COVID. Maybe you had it yourself. I tell people uh, you probably may you might know someone who had passed away from it. But I guarantee you, you know, someone that died suddenly this last year that you weren't expecting. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of direct uh, accrual of of uh, of terrible, terrible consequences from the lockdowns. And that's where kind of things shifted. We talked about, um, you know, the data point where so the data is bad. One of the big pillars was when we, Aaron and I came strong after IHME um, and showed how their models were completely wrong. And when we showed people how they could check the data themselves, it created an entire spawn of people who were like, I want to know, I want to know how to do this too. And so people started spanning out, looking at data sets. Um, but then when the lockdowns really became prominent, uh, we went after that as well. And there were some, you know, tough choices we had to make about what to go after. Yeah, it's interesting that like a lot of these institutions, um, they seem to be, you know, it's kind of like a circular funding mechanism with IHME, which is a uh, health metrics organization funded by Bill Gates um, out of the University of Washington. And then you have, you know, the, the Imperial College London, which is also kind of like, it seems like there's just like this, um, it, it's not conspiratorial to say that it's basically like, the, the word for it is like a cartel or a cabal. It, it's like the, this same funding mechanisms, no matter where you looked, like all these modelers were putting out so, so much ridiculous information. So that's why it was critical um, for, for you know, dissidents to this information to set up an alternative platform. So I, I was wondering how, how did you go about um, kind of like elevating these scientists, whether it was um, you know, Ioannidis or, or Martin uh, Kolderoff out of Harvard, Mm -hmm. or of course, Dr. Scott Atlas, how did you go about, like, how did you see the opportunity in, in, their, in their scientific um, research and acumen? Because like these people aren't experts at promoting themselves. How are you able to kind of like elevate them? And, you know, there are other people that do this, but I think your work was critical in, in making sure that their voices were being heard uh, repeatedly instead of these these, these government bureaucrats who have been in the government 50 years, haven't done anything, haven't had any accomplishments. 
we had some world-renowned scientists that you know weren't being heard until the communications aspect really elevated. Now, I, I think you know I, I ascribe to a theory called big seed marketing, where you try to to just spread some news as far as you can very quickly, and then it will trickle down and start replicating itself as a as a virus, right? And mm-hmm. so we would do that. We have you know like uh, some Twitter chat groups, and so uh, basically. All day long and still all day long throughout the day, I have people and myself calling out, you know, strikes and fouls and and uh, uh, and walks and bases. And we basically just say this needs to hit this needs to hit here. Um, And we try to amplify each other's word there, um, particularly over social media. Uh, But also it it started getting noticed and we would able you know, we had different people who had relations Um, and then people who had more time. I'll give you just one example that you and I had, which is. I was always troubled by uh, one of the key stats and recommendations that IHME had, which was around the ventilators, right? And I, I saw that they were, you know, co- it became a thing of controversy as uh, President Trump, uh, it, you know, put together the, the the weird mandates that basically made GM start producing all these ventilators. And then, you know, word started trickling out that uh, you put someone on a ventilator, it's basically their their death call. I mean, they they will like ninety percent of them would pass away. Um, and we saw a, a host of different things. And I think what happened was I, I called attention to it. I said, this is really interesting. You ran with it and put together this really meaty document on the ties to China, on IHME, on the recommendations, and then on the hypocrisy that we saw out of um, the New York doctors who were saying, we put people on ventilators so that it wouldn't spread the disease to us, right? A Hippocratic oath, complete disbarment. So um, that was a really interesting case of somewhere where someone had the acumen and time like you did and uh, other people had the idea and it just sort of like birthed itself. So um, it was sort of, I, th- I think one of the key things is understanding where people's energy is and then just maximizing it, you know? Yeah, it was, there, there were so many things like that. It was just one thing after another. And what's interesting is that, you know, we are really the people that are open source about this information. We don't have any biases. It's, it's all the people that claim to be uh, from the scientific field of inquiry. These are the people that have like a very rigid structure when they say that something is the science, this is the science. Um, whatever the narrative is, it needs to be on one single line of thought. There's no, this was my biggest problem with these, these institutions, whether it's academia from the, you know, the politicians, the bureaucrats, is that whatever became the science, you could not even openly discuss what, what else is out there, whether it was the lockdowns, the masks, the, you know, any, any topic related to the pandemic. Uh, you, we just saw it uh, today with, I don't know if you caught Jen Psaki's press conference where she said basically <laughs> that, that, you know, if it's, if, if it's not the government's officially approved line of communication through COVID-19, this is misinformation and Facebook needs to crack down on it. Like that's just so, so insane to me that a, a country, you know, based on individual rights, yep. free speech, that they're, they're, they're openly becoming totalitarians. And in the scientific community, I don't even want to call it the scientific community. I want to call it the, the academic elite credentialed community and the, the political bureaucrat community. They, they want to censor every single alternative opinion because I think that they are very much not confident in the information that they're that they're advancing through media channels, yeah. through their through even their their written publications that they they're just so 
uh, you know, focus on by either being politically correct, you know, either even going as far as to be woke. It, it's just it's just so it's so ridiculous. You know, two things there. I think that was one of the differentiating points between, uh, you know, the professionals like John Ioannidis, uh, Jay Bachtari, Martin Kuldrow, um, and others, and Scott Atlas, of course, who were we would seek out our help. And because uh, Jay admitted to me, I talked to him the other day. He just said, "Look, you guys have forgotten more about COVID than than they know, because you know these are people in their professional career. And if you've ever been a professional career." And you've had some upstart come up and join you. You realize they know more about the new stuff, right? And so we've spent our days. We had nothing else to do during those days when our jobs were all gone. So we were just buried ourselves in the literature. Um, and so it was the humility on their part to do that. And then a second point, kind of breaking news on 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 your podcast here uh, this afternoon. I will actually be uh, uh, filing a letter or sending a letter to the legal counsel of Facebook. Over the last three days, my account was suspended, and it was suspended because I posted a very, um, very tame, actually, uh, gra- uh, uh, image, a, an infographic from one of our colleagues, O Busybody, which um, detailed in very specifics uh, the literature, the scientific literature around masking kids and how it's ineffective um, and the true impact of COVID on kids, their true nature in um, in, in their, their viral presence and the, them being an actual break on the disease, the things that you and I know by heart. Uh, and because of that, uh, I was suspended for three days from Facebook. And so I've been approached by, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm basically going after them in a specific way. And we'll see where that goes. I hope they reinstate my account. But um, that affects me, right, as a, as a person, because I, I'm a consultant and I got to advertise for my clients on Facebook and everything else. When my presence is curbed there, it affects me financially. Yeah, that that's that's crazy that, you know, th- th- there's this collusion between the Biden administration and big tech now that's just so transparent. And they're they're very open about it now that, you know, they're communicating with Facebook and other social media networks about what they think is acceptable and what they think is not acceptable. And they will use the power of government to get their way. So um, we live in a very interesting society. It, it's interesting that they said that. Uh, you know, all these, the, the corporate press pundits and these hysterical people uh, on the political left were saying that Trump is a fascist, but like, this is basically yeah. straight out of the fascist playbook when you're, when you're trying to pressure big institutions into, um, you know, caving to the will of the, the power of the federal government. And I think these people are more than happy to do so, unfortunately, because their guy is now in office and, yeah. If the government can successfully collude with big tech, then the government doesn't need to actually censor people. They can just use the technology companies to censor. Well, look, a, a lot of these folks have, uh, you know, no families, no kids. They had their job intact, uh, and and as I always say, these would be the first people in line to weld you inside your apartment <laughs> if the government decided to do that. They would absolutely volunteer to do that. They wouldn't know how to use the welder, but they would absolutely volunteer to keep you inside. Um, it, it became really embarrassing uh, in many ways, especially as the, the protests from last summer came on, um, you know, the shift in, in narrative as far as the vaccines when uh, Biden took office. Uh, there's so much that's just we could write and there will there'll be volumes written about this. Um, and, and, you know, the 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 influence that we had, uh, I wish was more. I wish that we had more influence on um, on the Trump administration, that they made more uh, aggressive stances 
Uh, I think it would have uh, even saved him the election. But, um, you know, you could just see, for example, the number one reason why Trump won the election or lost the election was that uh, the the COVID uh, executive orders uh, that were done under the auspices of the emergency uh, really led to massive, massive issues. Uh, you know, this one yeah. case in point in Georgia, where the rejection rate of mail-in ballots went from 6% to 0.6%. I mean, that has an impact on what what transpires in an election. And so uh, I, I think, you know, you shoot yourself in the foot there. I wish we had been more influential. However, well, yeah, I, I do agree that the, the the election was was over pretty quickly after you shut down the country. However, I, th- I still think you can see the results of, of, of your work and, and other people's work. Like, of course, Trump lost the election and the, the COVID stuff in the federal government sucks. But where I live in Florida, um, no one's wearing masks anymore. In, in Georgia, it is the same thing. Arizona, same thing. South Dakota, same thing. That they're, they're very, very free states now. And I think had it not been for a group of concerned private citizens, we'd very much be resembling Canada right now. Because like these, as much as I, I, I like some of these politicians, they're not going to make any moves if they don't think that anyone's on their side. They're not going to shoot themselves in the foot. Even, I mean... I'm I'm very down on politicians nowadays for for many reasons. I think COVID related, particularly, um, that there was very little chance if there had never been a mobilized coalition against this craziness, we all would have been just stuck in lockdown forever. You you see what's going on in Australia and Canada and the UK. The entire Anglosphere is is a mess right now, and, and yeah. it's an embarrassing mess. So I, I think at least on on the state level. The fact that, I mean, Ron DeSantis, the, the data that was presented to him and, and the, the, the people who were presented to him, and I think, you know, you were even there physically in, in Florida several times to, to help help out his people. I, I think, you know, people owe you a huge debt of gratitude because I, I think with, without a mobilized coalition, we would just be entirely screwed. Across. Well, it, it, you know, it started where I, I would do our own data. We had a, you know, an entire instance of Tableau on the back end where we would pull in data from multiple sources across multiple states on a nightly basis. And I wake up, but then it got to the scale where I just, I couldn't do it. Um, and I, I started, my consulting business started picking up as, as people said, Hey, I, I want this guy on my side doing my stuff. I, and, but then, you know, I, I was able to to find people coming out of the woodwork and their lives changed because they started taking a stance. And that was really, it really was a, a gutsy call for a lot of people on our team to say, you know what, I'm, uh, my, my day job is shot. Why, why don't I look at, you know, making some changes here? And it really did impact people. I, I got a text from uh, a, uh, someone up in Orange County and they said, Justin, uh, my parents, uh, both in their uh, late seventies, too scared to go out, too scared to seek medical help. Uh, both of them died within four months of each other, not from COVID. Uh, and, and so it was really sad to see the impact. Um, one of the, the sites that I'm particularly proud of that's uh, not directly affiliated with Rational Ground, but I've been an advisor for them is covidstoriesarchive.org. Uh, and that's where we're trying to capture the good, bad, and ugly of what people went through while it's fresh in their minds and trying to get that uh, up and running. Because I think I think it's important that we log this in history um, for what it is. And, and it's a very, it's a very local experience. Um, it, it, you know, you go to the streets of New York, you go to Miami, you go to San Diego, and you'll hear people humming the, the songs of Dua Lupa and, and everything else there. But 
the experience of the pandemic is so local. Um, you know, here I am in San Diego in the suburbs, and it was masks a go go. It's still masks a go go in certain places, but you get closer into the beach, and people are a little bit freer there. And then, of course, I took several trips to Florida, and it was night and day. Like just little things you don't notice, like going into a restaurant. Oh, there's a salt and pepper shaker on the table. Oh, a, a physical yeah. menu, which I haven't seen in a year, right? It was just little things that you realize this has totally broken us and it's going to take us some time to recover. Do you think it's possible that like kind of like with the Iraq war, that a significant percentage of the population will one day come to figure out that like we were taken for the biggest ride of our lives and for no reason? Do you think it's it's possible that the American population can get there? Or do you think this will always be like kind of stamped in history? You know, there's, there's an interesting parallel that in the American consciousness, because I think people are taught this in public schools about th th this, this idol worship of FDR and, and how the New Deal was essential to recovering after the Great Depression. And that's just a, a completely warped understanding of history. Do you think that that's going to become the reality with COVID-19 that people are just going to say that this was the worst pandemic ever and all this stuff was worth it? I think we'll be vindicated in the end. I feel very strongly about that. Well, you know, Dennis Prager uh, in the spring of last year said this was, uh, uh, if it was one of the worst, if not the worst decision that we've ever made as a country to lock down. And so I believe, I believe he'll be vindicated. I think so too. I think um, because it became so personality driven, uh, Fauci, Burks, Horitz, uh, you know, I like to call him COVID Kardashian, uh, that, <laughs> I won't mention his name, but Friedman, you know, all these guys, uh, Gottlieb is who I'm referring to as COVID Kardashian. And, but uh, look, those guys, right, those folks really share a lot of the blame for people locking down and, and the, the, the instance they bring. And so I, I tell my team, don't set your expectations on those people being frog marched anywhere to jail, but set your expectations and keep pushing because we will be vindicated. Uh, and I think a majority of people will look back and say, we completely overreacted. I agree with you. The chances that a, that a guy like that, as much as I want to like fantasize about uh, Fauci being perp walked and thrown in federal prison for the rest of his life, because I do think he's one of the most He's transformed. So early on, I think Fauci was a reasonable person and something happened. I guess he really enjoyed the media coverage or whatever. These people became downright evil at some point that they just I, they were just totally in, I think, consumed by the power. But, but I, th I think you're right that these people are just morally speaking and, and judiciously speaking. I, I think that in a perfect world, these people would face tremendous consequences for what they did. Um, they're, they're only going to get away with it forever, unfortunately, because there's a significant coalition that has been either propagandized or that dis, that agrees with them. Um, these people, it, it really, I, I don't know about you, but it really changed my outlook on what people are capable of doing, how destructive they can be, and how, how much lack of, you know, empathy they have with, with their fellow um, Americans or Westerners or anywhere around the world. It was just shocking to me to see the depths that people would go just to seemingly be on the right side of things.
Yeah, that was that was very difficult to swallow too. And I think um, you know I've never been an anti-vaxer. Uh, I've got lots of kids. Actually, my wife is expecting uh, our four, our third together here. Um, this would be my uh, sixth together, and then our combined yes. eighth. But you know, I've never been an anti-vaxer. My kids will probably get vaccinated. But I'll tell you, I'm taking a closer look because now that I know how the sausage is made, I'm questioning everything, everything. Yeah. And I totally blame them for putting that in because their their falsification of data, um, their ignoring of data, uh, their cherry picking of data gives me very little confidence that they know what they're doing. And then you look into the emails of Dr. Fauci. I give you one example that came from the recent FOIA request uh, on this. You know, the some some guy from the Pepsi Foundation said, "Hey, we want to do uh, we want to talk real quick about some consultancy or someone you can recommend." He immediately said, "Yeah, schedule some time for this guy on Monday." That same day, within an hour, someone from J&J &J, said, Dr. Fauci, we really want to talk to you about the vaccine that we have developed. And he says, uh, I really don't have to control my time. That's really up to the Congress and everything else there, right? Because we know that he's a big MRA guy and he hates J&J. &J. And there's a perfect example of someone being completely biased there, his head in the clouds about who's going to play him in the movies, right? Uh, and it really is embarrassing to see them, them continue to do this. I think part of the problem was... Um, we got to the point as a team where initially it was like, look, let's be sensitive to people. People are concerned about this. They're suffering from PTSD to we quickly became very aware that there was nothing was going to change these people's mind. And so we, we started throwing bombs um, and sometimes that hurt us. Uh, and, and, you know, like I, I brought up to the team and it was a good self reflection, which was we spend a lot of time talking about masks, right? And we go after masks in a very strong way. I feel very strongly we'll be vindicated on that. But it burned out a lot of our hours, right? And every day we're talking about masks. And, um, you know, on hindsight, if I could go back in time, would I have the team concentrate so much on it? I don't know. I, I have to really ask my question that. And there's really questions we have to ask. For example, we know the median age of death is 80 years old. What if the median age of death for this was like the 1918 pandemic and it was 29 years old? Honestly, when I take a look at myself, I go, I don't know what I do. That, that would mean a lot of young kids would be dying, and I'd be protecting my kids in a very different way. Um, so that's the sad thing is it's kind of a cry wolf moment. What happens when a real pandemic hits us? Yeah, but there's so many. I mean, I, I almost evaluated my reevaluate, had to reevaluate my entire worldview over the last year and a half. And I, I think I've become more... Um, more of a freedom promoting person than ever before, not really attached to one singular ideology, but yeah, it, it was crazy. These, these big, these big pharma organizations, what they get away with. And it really makes you kind of go back in the archives and think, okay, so what have they gotten away with in the past too? And right. how can I trust them? And, and it's such an unfair burden to the average citizen to have to like filter through all of these claims that they're making, because sometimes, um, with these big pharmaceutical companies, they'll just kind of like hold a trial, have no second um, body looking into their the results that they published. And it's either like, okay, so you either trust big pharma or you're like, you know, good, good luck. You're, you're, you're on your own in the wilderness. Like sometimes there's just not enough data. And, and the fact is that these institutions have shown a, a willingness to uh, abuse the trust that they've had. Um, you've had so many pharmaceutical companies lobbying during the coronavirus in such a heavy manner for treatments that have been proven yeah. to 
not be helpful at, at all. Sometimes they have good treatments, but other times they're just, you know, they're like, okay, what's our bottom line looking like next year? If we can, especially, you know, when, one of the big things moving forward, and I'm sure your people have been all over this, is, is like the big booster debate and, and how young you want kids to be vaccinated. Like it, It's just, it, it's clear at some point that none of this becomes about health and it soon becomes about protecting Pfizer, um, protecting Gilead, protecting this revenue stream. And then you start to think, you know, I, I, I hate to be in a position where I can't trust anything they say, but it might just be the reality of the situation that you have to like kind of defer and hope that there's independent bodies that are going to step up and, and kind of like evaluate what's going on with these yeah. pharmaceutical organizations. I hope so too. I think, you know, even from a broader scope, the, the burden that we placed on the kids um, for the, the year plus that they were locked down was so tremendous and so outrageous. You know, there's an old fable that I call attention to. Uh, it's from, uh, I think, some ancient Judaic uh, text, which talked about the people of Noah. And when the floods rose, uh, the, 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 the people of the day who were left behind and didn't make it on the ship, right? Uh, when the floods rose to their ankles, they brought their kids to uh, their hips. When the floods rose to their hips, they put their kids on their shoulders. When the floods rose to their neck, they put their kids beneath their feet, drowned them, and stood on them so they could survive. And that's, that's a very shocking image of the evil of that day. Yeah. I kind of feel it's applicable here. Um, and there are so many points at which we placed the burden on our kids, um, and we decided that uh, our lives were better than theirs, whether it was venting patients because uh, we were so scared of the disease spreading or scared that our kids might spread it uh, and that the, the risk was so great that we had to keep them out of school and torture them at home with these Zoom calls and everything else. So it's just, it's awful. And we continue to do it here in California. We're trying to fight the fight and keep the masks off our kids. But I'll tell you, that's a, that's a tall order. It's not easy. Yeah, I, I have to remember that it's still going on in other states because I'm yeah. living this nice lifestyle in no, Florida it's, now. <laughs> it's a nightmare still here. It's like we're, every yeah. week, Tuesdays, we go to the San Diego Board County meetings and we don't know what they're going to say. And they, yeah. they could say we're shutting down again. And I, I, I fully anticipate there'll be more shutdowns coming. Yeah, in my area of Florida, how we identify people from out of town is the, the people that are still wearing masks because <laughs> everyone else would be like, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous, but yeah. So a lot of people use that, that barber, you know, if you ask your barber, if you need a haircut analogy, then he's always going to say yes. But, but this is like, this is not at all the same. It's, it's not an apples to apples comparison because these are literally pharmaceutical companies that want to um, inject your kids with, with, with experimental um, <laughs> treatments. It's very different than asking your barber if you need a haircut. Yeah, and because- look, I, I always say, look, it took the FDA five years to approve mm-hmm. ginkgo biloba. And somehow we consider that we could take a vaccine that's six months old and inject it to everyone across the country. It just seems to me it's outrageous uh, that, you know, no one's calling up that double standard. It's it's very challenging. And you're right. uh, A lot of and and there was a a very unique financial incentive that was created. I mean, if you're an administrator of like the hospitals, for example, if you're an administrator of a hospital, you're almost derelict in your duty if you don't try to call out every single patient as a COVID patient because they shut down the most profitable parts of your hospital. Yep. So all the inpatient stuff, which makes all your money, is dead. Your hospital is going to go under. What do you do? I got to get sixteen to thirty-nine thousand dollars per patient. So you know, let's just be very broad in how we identify a COVID patient. Yeah, very COVID. Tough. 
COVID was definitely one of the worst statistical catastrophes that, in terms of just the, the, the budgeting that the hospitals had to do, the, 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 the work, uh, even like in the morgues, they were just asking them to be labeled as COVID patients. And, and it was just so, it, it's so insane. And I think that that big statistic that you cited earlier is so important to understanding the reality of this pandemic, that the, the median and average age of death being very similar to the average age of death for an average citizen. And none of us were, were ever saying that people didn't die of COVID. Tons of people died of COVID, but, but the numbers are so fudged at this point that like when you go on like that Worldometer website or John Hopkins, where it's like, you know, 600,000, whatever the number is now, like I, I just, uh, I appreciate what you guys are doing with, with, because someone has to continue to stay up to date on the data. But, but the idea that like, you know, people that, ha- that people have ever been dropping dead in the streets because of COVID has always been false. That you know, since the beginning, we, we've gotten all this not like the, our TV screens uh, everywhere has just been flooded with bad data. So, so you bring the good data uh, again has been so critical. Well, it's been so interesting. You know, you and I were mentioned in the same breath uh, in that famous MIT report, right? As being part of the anti-mass brigade yeah. or otherwise, right? And it was so funny because, like, you know, their conclusion was, well, these COVID skeptics are actually really keen on data. Uh, They're self-critical if their data doesn't live up to a certain mark. It's like, we're very proud of that, right? And when we when we go through, we'd show, for example, that, you know, the data lags and and that that has a real impact on what sort of policy you have there. Um, You know, people didn't quite understand it. And it's difficult to convey that. Uh, And, and, you know, if I were being kind to the CDC, right, uh, they used to say, look, don't trust our data except for one or two years out. And we sort of mandated that they immediately turn around and start giving us data like overnight poll counts, right? And uh, you know we shouldn't be surprised if the data was just lousy, laggy, and awful. And it was, and and it impacted policies in a dramatic way. Uh, and I think um, you know there there was just a cascade of awfulness that went through it. Yeah, I think you know on a more positive uh, a more positive outlook of this would be that a lot of people have been whatever you want to call it, based, red-pilled, uh, you know, become woke because of, because of this moment, because people saw that these so-called elite communities really revealed themselves for the world to see how incompetent, how unimpressive they are. And it is just, it was, an, it was really even eye-opening to, to someone like me who's worked in the media space for quite some time, that even I didn't understand the depths that they would go to um, in terms of just their manipulation and disinformation campaigns. It was just shocking to me. And it, it puts me in a position, and, and I think a lot of people also agree with this, that there are some things that you're just never going to be able to trust. Uh, you know, there's some institutions that you're just never going to be able to trust again. And that, that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and I think it can maybe hopefully lead to a more transparent republic in the future, at least uh, on a local level. Uh, it, especially, I'm encouraged by seeing like all these parents that are rising up against the mass mandates in the schools. You know, these are all grassroots-led efforts. Yeah. There's no like politicians that are leading this fight. People have really taken. I don't know if you're seeing this, but people have really taken it upon themselves. You know, encouraged by information coming from like rational ground and others. To, to just kind of like go out there to the local school board, go out there to their mayor's office and just like kind of challenge these narratives that are being put out there. 
Yeah, the curtain has been torn down and it's brought a lot of people that typically wouldn't engage in this. But when it started touching, you know, it's like, look, I always say I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm a darn good data guy. And usually I wouldn't insert myself into someone's domain, but they sure seem to be inserting themselves into my life, my business, my church, my kids' education, my health. And so they'll forgive me if I check the math and it turns out the math is wrong. And I think a lot of people have felt that way, which is like, well, this is just something distant. And then they shut them out of their kids out of school and they go, whoa, what is this about? Right. And uh, my hometown of, of the Bay Area there, uh, they you know, there are a lot of people who woke up and realized this is not what I you know, what intended my government to be. Uh, I think part of it stems from just a total lack of experience. I mean, these people who are the unelected health directors, these are not the top notch people. They're cushy jobs that they got through political maneuvering. And it was supposed to be an easy gig that they could just retire on. Right. Uh, and so uh, seeing the impact that they have on our lives is really to help us question what we do with these people. Again, my kindest interpretation would be, you know, if, if, if I'm in a professional space, I can tell you in an instant whether or not an ad campaign is going to work or not, because I have that 10,000 hours of experience just doing that and data analysis and everything else there. These folks don't have any of that experience. You know, they didn't have years and years of practice doing, you know, public policy towards these things. Um, that's why Scott Atlas was so important to this thing is he wasn't a virologist, but he knew public policy and he knew the impact that it had. When you have 50% of cancers going undiagnosed and 50% of, immuniza of immunizations missed and cancer treatments missed, I mean, he knew immediately that this was going to have a dreadful impact. Uh, he has a great book, I think, coming out here later on, which is going to be really interesting to watch and see what he reveals. Yes. Um... And, and those conversations that I heard were happening in the White House were, were very fascinating. Um, that they, it's interesting because like when you talk to Scott Atlas, he's like the nicest guy in the world, right? It's very tough to have animosity towards Scott Atlas. And I know that the, the corporate press did their best to destroy, destroy his reputation and do whatever they could to bury him. And this was, um, they were basically talking to the bureaucrats and Dr. Burks was happy to talk to the press and smear him. And I'm sure Fauci did so as well. But it, it's really unbelievable to see, you know, the difference between what's being told in like the Washington Post and Vanity Fair about Scott Atlas and what a, what a decent, genuine guy Scott Atlas was. And it really just says a lot about these people on the COVID task force who were just out to get him. And I don't, I don't know if you would agree with this. I think they were out again to get him simply because he presented an alternative narrative. I think that was really it, that they just didn't want what they were saying to be challenged. Right. And when, when they went question him, he would, he would devour them. He would destroy yes. them instantly. And he'd do so with specific data. You notice that, you know, Fauci uh, rarely presents any data on his side, right? He just kind of spouts off stuff. He's the and science. Scott, yeah, Scott was very <laughs> meticulous and, and would, you know, uh, he he was very particular about the data that he would present and making sure that it was up to snuff there. Uh, and that's something you realize very quickly. Uh, you know, I used to give the benefit of doubt. I'm just a nice guy. I said, look, you know, I think just Burks and, and Fauci are just kind of this way. And some insider told me, he said, no, no, these are dumb people. They are dumb. And that that's really unfortunate. And, you know, anyone who's worked in government can tell you these are not like top of the notch professionals. Like, you, you couldn't get them to do a pivot table in Excel, let alone to you know, describe what sort of public policy impact it's going to have. They rely on 
you know, other people to do that who other ha who, who have other agendas. So uh, it's a very unfortunate how the, the the sausage is made moment. I hope we look back on this and we feel vindicated, Jordan, because we've been uh, part of quite the journey there. Yeah, this is this is what I think a lot of people don't understand about Washington D.C. is that they have a, these bureaucrats have unique form of intelligence, and their form of intelligence comes in being able to understand the power structure and navigate their way around it to uh, hoover up more power for their benefit. But yes, like when you there's a reason why Dr. Fauci never debates anyone on anything. And he only does softball media interviews because he'd fold like a lawn chair under pressure. And he, it, it is crazy that he's never been under pressure um, throughout his in, in, entire tenure. He's been in government for 50 years. And um, yeah, I, I heard generally the same thing about, about these individuals that they were just, they, they come off, you know, you think they're gods because CNN presents them in, in other um, you know, print platforms present them in this way in which they are all knowing and they, they know all these things. But if, it's interesting when you look back at their accomplishments, it's very hard to find any. And I think Fauci's 80 page book on his 50 years in, in, uh, in government really, really says a lot about what he believes he's accomplished because he couldn't really um, do uh, get into any more depth. Uh, these are Fauci and Burks were notably two people who have uh, said that they're, you know, the pinnacle of their career was working on the AIDS crisis and on HIV and on on vaccines for that stuff, and that was just a disaster. And I think, but, yeah, but anyway, yeah, hints of it here and there. I have to tell you, I think your next uh, here, I'll give you a next uh, thing to go after. There's a guy who co-writes um, and has for the last 15, 20 years uh, all the major papers that you see Dr. Fauci on. Um, I truly believe he might be one of the key power players in this thing that's been very quiet. Uh, but you can look up his name later and try to figure out the, the famous uh, Cell Magazine article he co-wrote with Fauci. Fauci didn't have time to write that. No. Those were all his words. Every single paper for the last 15, 20 years, Fauci has been on. This guy has been on almost all of them as well. There are people that are going to come out and you realize, um, yeah, there were motives that people had who were the real you know, tail workers behind these things. And then other people you know, went through and, and found the power and, and fluctuated it. Uh, I really hope that we, you know, we can take a template from Florida, uh, look at some of the things they've done, for example, on the state and county basis where they have some triggers on the county level in case some county goes off and declares an emergency themselves. Um, because really, it's truly, if, if, if we face a real pandemic going forward or just another big uh, uh, influenza season, I really worry about uh, the impact this has because uh, it's brought out how many people who are agoraphobic and who are virtue signaling have come together to make our lives miserable. Yeah, this was a way that like elevated everyone that was insane and manipulative and, and, and sociopathic in our society to a new level of status they never should have had. But uh, Justin, really appreciate you uh, taking time to, to be with us today. And uh, Jordan, uh, thanks you know, for all you do. We, we just love the, the, the engagement we've had with you. And uh, let's just, let's, let's keep the ball rolling folks. Um, we're, we're, we're mostly through this, but there's a lot to clean up. Indeed. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thanks.